Hello everyone, this is Devin Boker, and you are listening to The Wildlife. You know, out of all that goes into making a podcast, I think the thing that I, I believe is really genuinely the most important is um, transparency. You know, transparency in the process, the the whys, and, and maybe most of all, the frame of reference from which I'm approaching a topic, the biases that I might have, even if I'm actively trying to avoid speaking from a place that's like fortified by strong opinions. So here's my transparency for today. I worked in wolf conservation for nearly three years. It was for a Minnesota-based nonprofit organization. I was a projects manager. And as a part of that role, a following of my belief and passion and the mission of the organization, I actively worked to uphold protections for wolves across North America, prevent hunts and validate the reasons for holding them on a biological basis, and debunk myths through comprehensive education initiatives, especially those relating to wolf livestock conflicts. I was also actively critical of the work and lethal methods of agencies like uh, the USDA's Wildlife Services and worked with them hand in hand to implement more non-lethal methods for long-term conflict prevention. I also worked, well, for quite a while at um, exposing some severe methodological flaws and uh, uh, shortcomings in both how the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources was conducting their annual wolf population count and how they were communicating those results. Now, I could get into the details of the Everest levels of data that I have gone through with a fine-tooth comb just to justify my stance, but if there's anything that I have learned, which is part of why I left the field to become a high school educator, is that data doesn't do it. In my conversation with Dr. Vucetich, we discussed the elephant and the writer as a metaphor for the brain and communicating with people with different beliefs than you, especially if the reason for those beliefs are based more in emotion than they are in fact. Data is useful. Data provides a strong foundation, support, and at times, the final nail in the coffin. But data is also cold, emotionless easily manipulated or skewed or taken out of context by people who wanted to fit their viewpoint. And it requires an assumed level of understanding that isn't always that common. We don't mend divides with data. We mend divides with compassion, communication, and collaboration. The data might guide the way, and, and it definitely shouldn't be ignored in some kind of effort to compromise by any means, but but we don't get anywhere without the elephant. And so, as you listen, you may notice that our conversation is very to the point, um, doesn't take a lot of time to dive into the data or detailed arguments against very specific points. That's 100% intentional. I hope that whatever your viewpoint in regards to wolves, that you take the time to listen to our conversation in its entirety and engage with others with what you learn. So, I guess that's it. An effort to end protections for gray wolves that began with the Trump administration has come to fruition under the Biden administration. The species, 
native to much of the US and Canada, was only recently dropped from the endangered species list. In response, a team of scientists is calling on the US Fish and Wildlife Service to instead continue safeguarding the species. The primary signatory of this letter is John Vucetic. For the past 25 years, Dr. John Vucetic has been the lead researcher of the wolves and moose of Isle Royale. He is newly the author of Restoring the Balance, What Wolves Tell Us About Our Relationship with Nature. It's a book which meaningfully recounts all that John has learned from these incredible creatures. A wolf, John says, is a living creature with a perspective, memories of yesterday, an interest in how tomorrow turns out, joys and fears of its own, and a story to be told. Today on The Wildlife, why protections were ended, what's happened since, why hunting wolves is viewed by many as unjustifiable, their social nature and disruptions, the why behind anti-wolf rhetoric, and how protections can be put in place once again. Welcome to the show, Dr. John Vucetic. Well, um, so lots of stuff is going on, uh, as per usual, in the in the world of wolves. And the uh, the most recent bit of news is is that uh, uh, ESA protections are are being removed from the gray wolf uh, in the U.S. Now, is that is that um, all of the U.S. or is that just the lower forty eight? It's uh, it speaks to the lower forty eight. Okay. With a couple of exceptions. Uh, so red wolves are still protected mm-hmm. and they live in the southeast. And Mexican wolves are still protected. They live in the southwest. And the, the decision to remove wolves from the endangered species list in the lower 48 um, is a decision that had been made a, a little while ago, earlier this year. What we're seeing in the news in the last like several days or week or so is that there have been a number of people, my, myself included, who had tried to petition the Biden administration to reinstate those protections. And the Biden administration seems to be signaling, I think that's the best way to say it now, seems to be signaling that they're they're not planning at this time to, to reinstate those protections. Sure. I, I suppose for for the un, the unaffiliated, the the uninitiated, uh, what would be the the reasoning for for removing protections in the first place? Well, gosh, yeah, this this gets into uh, the complicated intersection between uh, state management of wildlife and the federal management of wildlife. And there's a, there's a little uh, well, some complexities here. We know from like basic uh, civics class that we all had in, say, elementary or high school, that us in the United States, states get the privilege of managing and governing most issues that affect states. There are only a few exceptions that the federal government uh, will take over on. This is true for wildlife as well. Wildlife, generally speaking, is managed at the state level. The main exception is that when a species becomes so endangered that it becomes in the national interest and then the federal government takes over its management. That's the, the broad generic background. The specifics are that, um, well, number one, uh, several states uh, have begun to have really aggressive harvesting of wolves, hunting and trapping of wolves. And they've been allowed to do this because the protections of the ESA have been removed. And some of the uh, harvesting is, is, is really extremely aggressive, uncalled for, inappropriate in a variety of ways. That's led some people to think that it would be good to reinstate their protections. And here's where one has to be a little bit careful about how the laws work and what the purposes are. You know, the Endangered Species Act wasn't designed really to prevent populations from being hunted. The Endangered Species Act was designed to prevent species from going extinct. 
And on, on this issue, or I should say the endangered species was intended to, to uh, recover species from an endangered state. And, and so this is where the, the federal law becomes kind of complicated because there's a little ambiguity and a lack of um, kind of uh, universal understanding of what the Endangered Species Act is meant to do. There's a really nuanced phrase in the Endangered Species Act. It's the legal definition of an endangered species. And it says that a species is endangered if it's at risk of extinction throughout all or a significant portion of its range, close quote. And that last part of that phrase, throughout all their significant portion of ranges, is a, is a big deal. Wolves used to live over most of the lower 48, and now they occupy about 15% of their former range. And depending on how you interpret that phrase, significant portion of range, some people would say to occupy 15% of your former range is nowhere close to occupying that significant portion that's required. People who believe that, I'm among them, would say wolves never should have been removed from the Endangered Species Act in the first place. It really isn't about hunting. It's about the fact they didn't they don't live in enough places that they used to live in, and that's the problem. And of course, the fact that they're being hunted so aggressively uh, makes the situation worse. Because here's what it does is, well, maybe wolves would get to that condition that they should be at on their own. But they can only get there on their own if they're not so aggressively hunted, and and that's been uh, that's been one one of the concerns as well. Sure. Yeah, I I saw so back in what was this February now where Wisconsin had their February hunting season, they had put in a 119 wolf limit and killed 218 before before the period was even was even up, uh, and I remember at the time there was a lot of there was a lot of pushback because it was you know. St- we're being told states are able to manage their wolf populations responsibly. Here we are, our very first wolf season, and we're going over target. You know, can can we then trust uh, states or some states, all states, uh, to to be able to do this effectively? Um, and and I and and there's been there's been a lot of developments in uh, Montana, in particular, um, uh, snaring. Uh, I remember there are some instances, I believe, where. Uh, I, I don't want to get it wrong entirely, but I, I believe where the the governor himself had ac- actually um, illegally taken a uh, a wolf, and so that led to some some other things as well. Right. You, you know, I think the the question about hunting wolves it um, it's really closely related to, to hunting more generally, and the the question about hunting is uh, it's, it's really very simple. Uh, you, you shouldn't kill something without a good reason. And so, and different people have, uh, you know, different thresholds for what constitutes good reason. There's good sociological work on this. It turns out that if, if, uh, if eating meat is part of it, something like 70% of Americans think that that's an okay reason to, to hunt. But the minute that meat is not part of the motivation for hunting, uh, you know, quite a few Americans are in disagreement with the idea. And what's, what's really disappointing about wolf hunting is that it, it really does seem to be motivated by, by hatred. And in so much as that's the case, it's it's um, it's remarkable because the United States has a, a rich hunting heritage, and uh, but this is the first time really in our history uh, that we ever decided we wanted to hunt something because we hated it, and uh, that's that's I I think a stain on America's hunting tradition, and it's a stain that will not uh, that will not uh, fade away quickly. I'm, I'm afraid, and so uh, yeah, no, it's just just bad news. Yeah, I. I... 
my in my own observation, so I'm I'm located in uh, Minnesota, which was kind of the last stronghold of of wolves in the lower 48 for quite some time. Um, and and wolves are kind of a point of pride, but also a point of a lot of controversy. Um, and and frequently, I guess to summarize, a lot of the arguments that I that I hear from people who are in support of having some sort of wolf hunt is uh, there are too many because um, they are reducing our deer population, um, which is then impacting deer hunting and uh, also conflicts with with livestock. Right, right. Yeah, uh, no, these are these are the, these are several of the familiar arguments. And uh, it, I mean, seriously, it's, it's just kind of disappointing um, that, that those are the kind of arguments that are used because they, they, they're not very strong. Here's the, the first thing. So the notion that there's too many and we should have few, the actual number of wolves, who cares? Who would even know if it weren't for the fact that a state agency decided to count them? What one has to do is ask, what problem does a wolf cause and how is the best way to deal with that problem? And there really aren't too many problems that wolves cause that are tightly tied to how many there are on the landscape. They're tied to the behaviors of individual wolves that sometimes behave in ways that are inconvenient for some of us. And with respect to livestock, um, you know, from an industry-wide perspective, uh, livestock losses due to wolves are positively trivial. They are literally a rounding error in, uh, in the industry. However, if you're the livestock owner whose um, livestock are killed, it's different. It's, it's a concern for you. And there's two uh, responses to that concern. The first is that um, recreational hunting is not a very sensible way to deal with that problem. There's a great deal known about how to deal with livestock losses and everything that's known about it speaks to a few things. One is that you have to be focused on the offending wolf. You have to be at the place where uh, these events took place and you have to be there in short order, like not next month or the month after, but like, you know, that week. And so a recreational harvest doesn't have that kind of specificity that's required to, to take care of, of those kind of problems. And then finally, um, you know, one of the important concerns for livestock uh, owners is, is the financial burden that comes with, um, with having lost livestock. And there are compensation programs available. And I think it's fine if a person uh, wants to complain about a livestock compensation program that is maybe not enough money or it's too onerous to get the money. That's fine. Let's work through those issues. But, um, but working through those issues doesn't, isn't going to end up on let's have a recreational hunt. Yeah, I, I, one, one, uh, one method that I'm particularly fond of. See, a, a few years back, we spoke to Dr. Kustup Sharma. He's located in Nepal, does research on snow leopards. And there's a lot of similarities between, between snow leopards on the landscape uh, and, and snow leopards in rural communities and how they might impact individual farmers or shepherds. And, and one of the programs that they kind of put in place was um, almost like a, a locally organized, funded and run insurance program. So it was simply a, we're putting in money to a pool. And if one of our neighbors loses something due to a snow leopard, now we can just financially, we can compensate, we can replace that instead of going after the snow leopard. And it's been tremendously effective. I don't see why we can't do something like that here. <laughs> oh, I know. And, and uh, the example that you cited came from Nepal. And, you know, the, the, 
the United States is far wealthier country than Nepal. And we, if, if Nepal can figure out how to do this financially, the United States certainly can. And there are other uh, schemes too in, in, in Sweden, for example, in the northern part of the country, um, where reindeer, semi-domesticated reindeer, sometimes get depredated by, in, in this case, um, uh, wolverines are, are one of the predators there. Um, what happens is that if you're the livestock owner, uh, you get paid if there are wolverines living on your property at the end of the year. Hmm. And so, uh, so you, you, uh, it's more of a proactive thing to kind of try to mitigate the loss in the first place through husbandry practices. If you're successful, you get to uh, you know you, you get compensated for having those animals at the at the end of the year, and uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it's a diversity of, of ways of, of compensating, and and again, uh, none of them are perfect. They can all be implemented improperly, and there are challenges, and those challenges should just be met. But but meeting and dealing with those challenges for compensation that just doesn't end with let's have a recreational hunt because that's not a sensible way to deal with that problem. It it. it, it because it's not a sensible way, it basically amounts to just revenge. And, and you know, I mean, humans uh, have a much greater capacity than, than to just be revengeful. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm uh, familiar myself with um, the three S's. I'm sure you're familiar with those as well. The uh, the shoot, shovel, shut up uh, kind of methodology of handling handling wolves. Um, and as well as, you know, I mean, like you, like you said, in terms of responding to individual wolves, I know... Um, the USDA has their wildlife services program. Um, and as far as I'm aware in uh, Minnesota, looking back through the data, at least for about the last 10 years, it's an average of like 7% of the estimated population that ends up being um, removed or, or killed by, by wildlife services. So with those two things in combination, um, to me, it seems that there's not really anything additionally that needs to be like there's no additional population management in terms of removing wolves that would really be justifiable. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. And it's by this sort of like process of elimination that we're going through that leads one to believe that the last remaining motivation for why it is that people want to do this is, is, is either hatred or just the most basic disregard for, for living things. And I mean, neither one of those are, are uh, what the kind of place that we should be living in. So I, there's something that I've heard brought up before. And so I'm kind of wondering what your perspective on it might be. Um, and forewarned, it sounds at first at face value, sounds a little conspiracy ish, but okay. yeah. I don't know. It seems kind of like also like a reasonable argument. Do you think that any of the motivation for, um, removing wolf protections aside from just like that, that base kind of visceral dislike of wolves that so many people hold has anything to do with the fact that as compared to other endangered species that tend to live on like, like, like an area the size of a County and that's it. Um, wolves cover such a significant range and part of protecting a species is protecting their habitat. And so if you are going to uphold protections for, for a species like the wolf that also lives in areas where there's a lot of potentially valuable land use, um, that hinders a lot of economic opportunity. And so maybe your best interest is let's get rid of those protections. Sure. You know, um, it is the case that um, wolves have a tendency to set precedents. And it is the case that we have so symbolized wolves. 
uh, that they that they represent when we're talking about wolves. They represent many things that we think about nature, both uh, when it is the case that we love nature and wolves, and also when we hate wolves and the things that it, of nature that it may represent. And so, um, so it is definitely the case when people are thinking about wolves and the Endangered Species Act, they often have other cases in mind. But but really, uh, I, I mean, some species are kind of challenging. Um, sage grouse, mm-hmm. man, that's a challenging creature. Uh, they live on some valuable real estate. And uh, red cockaded woodpeckers, uh, there was a time in their history um, where protecting them and their habitat was also challenging because they also live on places that people would like to utilize for financial reasons and uh, it would be for forestry and uh, and that would be bad for those woodpeckers. Um, wolves, um, you know, wherever there's livestock, there'll be concerns, but those concerns are always really quite manageable. They're quite frankly, from a problem-solving perspective, easier than those two other examples that I offered. And, and so I think... I think that the issue with wolves is uh, is pretty importantly that we symbolize them so much, and that causes uh, some people to really, really hate them uh, for for really no good reason, and and, and other people, of course, uh, love them quite dearly, and, and of course, some people that love them quite dearly, I, I think a lot of the love is also uh, kind of uh, you know it's, it's a general love of nature that's kind of focused right on on the, on the wolf. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting the the symbolization of wolves, um, almost almost kind of severing them from their just kind of biological nature, and so yeah. so it's hard for people to focus in on it, one of the one of the things I like to um, often reference when I'm when I'm reading about things like like climate change communication and science communication and things is is this idea of of your elephant being. Um, or not your elephant, your brain being the elephant and the writer, right? Your, your elephant is your emotional, your survival, you know, portions of your brain. Whereas the writer it's it thinks it's in charge a lot of the time, yeah. not so much It's highly influenced by that elephant. If the elephant wants to go a yes, different direction, sure. it's going to, and, yes, yes, yes. and, and so much of the rhetoric and symbolism about wolves is so tied to that elephant that yeah. you can, you can sit there and try to talk writer to writer as much as you want. It's not going yeah. to get you anywhere. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's strong references to Hinduism there. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know. um, and so, uh, no, I, I think I think you're totally right, and and uh, that these things are connected to our affect and our emotions is not. Uh, um, it's not like fundamentally problematic. Is I mean, as, as you said, it's uh, it's it's to be human to be this way, to be connected this way to our emotions, and. Uh, and, and and so it's it is indeed just something we have to have to deal with, um, but it, again, um, it, it probably speaks more to uh, when you have a case that's so emotionally charged. Okay, that's the case that we have here. Well, then what? Then what you do? And what I would say is, okay, well, when possible, let's uh, look at things from a more rational perspective, not. That it's a substitute for emotionality and not that being emotional is problematic, but this, this make sure that we don't neglect the rationality. Yeah. Yep. And the rationality starts with the question, you shouldn't kill some of them without a good reason. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and again, you, you, it's hard to start with that very rational question and end up with recreational hunting. Yeah. I've never seen anyone be able to do it, actually. So in terms of like in the event that that a hunt does take place somewhere, how, how does that impact 
wolves, aside from just, you know, simply reducing the, the amount of them, how, how might that impact packs or the population? Um, what could that mean? Sure. You know, one of the most important things uh, is that wolves are uh, social creatures. They, they live in packs and a pack basically is a family group. And um, if you kill the quote unquote wrong wolf, um, a, a leader of the pack or somebody who is really instrumental to that pack, um, you know, it, it can it can be bad news for, for the entire pack. Sometimes that bad news for the entire pack ends up being bad news for people too, for humans, uh, because now you have wolves that are um, a little bit in a sense uh, displaced. And those displaced wolves are, are much more likely to get themselves into trouble eating livestock and, and that sort of a thing. Um, you know, that, that's the, the, the most important consequence of hunting is that you disrupt more, far more than just the lives of those wolves. Um, here we get into uh, something that is a little bit nuanced, I think, at least in my view, and some of my colleagues might, might disagree or at least give a, a furrowed eyebrow at what I'm about to say next. But sometimes what people want to hear and or sometimes say themselves is that if we hunt wolves, it'll be bad for ecosystem health and the deer population is kept healthy and these sorts of things. And there's no doubt, there's absolutely no doubt at all that wolves have, a, have an important impact on the deer population. But I, I think it's a mistake to, um, to rest our hopes on not hunting or killing wolves because they do something in the ecosystem. Whatever it is that we think they do in the ecosystem is some kind of scientific claim. And scientific claims sometimes over time change. And we realize what we said now is maybe not quite right and, and uh, needs to be adjusted a little bit. Some scientists have been, I think accused is the right word. It's, it's, it's not the best word, but it's close enough. Some scientists have been accused of like kind of exaggerating or, or building up too much the impact that wolves have on ecosystems. And when I say that they've been accused of that, they've been accused of that by other scientists who, who know quite a lot about wolves. And so I, I love to talk about the kinds of uh, impacts that wolves have on ecosystems. But man, that's not part of the reason why you should or shouldn't kill one. They're a living creature. They have interests. We're humans. Uh, we have the kind of moral maturity to, again, go back to the basics, which is don't kill things without a good reason. That's the, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, there's there's a uh, there's an intrinsicness to the whole thing, like an intrinsic value. It's kind of like it's kind of like, you know, Sometimes when, when you're talking to somebody and you say like, you know, like, tell me about yourself and they start with what their job is and, and not really anything else about themselves as a person, because we're so focused on what is, what is that doing for me? Um, rather than what is its value in and of itself? Um, no, absolutely. And the, the analogy with, with, uh, who are you versus what do you do is, is a perfect analogy. We, we want to be as humans, we want to be respected for who we are ultimately, because there'd be someday when we can't keep doing whatever it is that we do, and we still want to be treated well. And uh, and, and, and really, um, well, here's the, the question. The question is, to how much of the rest of the natural world does that kind of thinking extend? And uh, in, in my view, it's, it's it undoubtedly extends to, to at least all vertebrates. So birds, mammals, fish, reptiles, all those kinds of creatures. Uh, certainly deserve that same kind of treatment. So I, I would be um, I would be remiss if I didn't dif didn't kind of jump back to to a point that you brought up just a moment ago. So in terms of in terms of uh, you know 
protections versus not protecting and, and things like that. Um, one of the things that you brought up was the possibility of essentially interrupting the the flow, the synergy of, of a pack unit, and then how that may then in terms cause what people might deem as problematic, um, problematic individuals. So uh, I, I feel like a lot of the pushback for, for why we don't need protections is, you know, arguments about things like livestock um, and how they might impact rural, rural people or farmers. Um, so what you're kind of saying is in a sense, actually, you know, if you want to, if you want to protect your livestock, the very last thing that you should be doing is, is hunting and, and disrupting packs. Absolutely. If, if you're a livestock, the best thing you could have is a well-behaved wolf pack that lives where you live. Because a well-behaved wolf pack, one that doesn't eat livestock, which is by far most wolves, um, that pack will keep other wolves away. And uh, and so, so, yes, there's 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 no doubt about that at all. That's, that's absolutely right. What, so do you have any um, information for So let's just imagine that somebody is listening right now who who does have have a property where they have animals or livestock and they're saying I don't want to wait until I've lost something. I don't want to be reactionary. What can I do to just make sure that doesn't happen in the first place? Right, sure. You know the, the first thing there's there's two organizations to to pay attention to. One is depending on whatever state you live in would be the state agency um, that is responsible. They they often know like where the hot spots are or trouble places are and uh and they'll be able to say um hey you know uh there hasn't been a trouble in your place in years you probably don't have to you know do much of anything special beyond what you've been doing so far in other places say oh no you haven't been uh, affected but we do know that maybe some neighboring ranches have and so anyways a state agency can be helpful the other thing is uh you know D defenders of wildlife is a, is a national organization that's uh quite familiar with a, a number of of, of um, finer details to this uh, uh, regard. A lot of it has to do with uh, particular husbandry skills uh, that a livestock owner could practice. Um, but, but you did mention something that actually I wanted to draw a little attention to, which is this, you spoke about um, rural people, special kind of rural person, livestock owners, and, uh, and what it is that they need to do to be, uh, to be well off. You know, um, a person can only uh, focus on so many things in life and they probably should focus on the things that are most important. And, and, and here there's a risk of, of perhaps conflating livestock owners with rural people because most rural people are not livestock owners. Sure. But, but, but I think you're right to identify or imply that um, a lot of the fault line between, or much of the fault line between people who like wolves and dislike wolves, it, it does have an urban rural kind of split to it. And, you know, if, if you think of the well-being of rural people, it has very little to do with wolves. Wolves are not really top of the list for whether rural people are doing well or not. You know that they have um, they have second-rate infrastructure for the internet access. They have second-rate access to healthcare. They get less money per capita for education. I mean, those are the things that really affect their well-being. And sadly, that's on all of us. And my goodness, I would get behind those causes and push as hard as any rural person would to, for them to be better off on those occasions. Uh, it just, the action just ain't with wolves. And, um, and so, so again, the livestock owner would, would take some certain uh, kind of 
husbandry practices, those are best kind of just connect with the state agency and or Defenders of Wildlife. They have good advice about that. Humane Society is also another organization that has good advice about husbandry practices that limit the risk of, of, of depredations. Um, but it, uh, again, you're kind of right to imply that it fits into this bigger question of, wow, we all want things to be better off for our own lives. And, and for rural people, it's, again, it's got little to do with wolves. Very well said. Very well said. Um, so in terms of, in terms of then getting protections back back for wolves. Um, I, I know you said that, and I know that you were one of the primary signatories on a, uh, a fairly large uh, letter uh, that the administration's not really seeming to indicate that they're, they're ready to shift at any point. So what, I mean, how do you do it then? Well, that's a good question. And, and on, on this point, I'm, I'm a little sad to say, I, I, I don't have a good answer. And the, and, but the manner in which I don't have a good answer is, is probably pre- pretty particular. We already spoke about how this is a little bit about the balance between state and federal power, and mm-hmm. and I think it's the case, like for better or for worse, the the the, the Biden administration is probably not going to do anything at the federal level, and so what that means is that this becomes a state level issue, and here there might be some value. I don't know for sure, but it's it's worth positing, anyways is that we have seen in the last number of years, um, state legislatures, in most cases, Republican controlled, making really big, powerful changes. Uh, we're talking about, and these are things that are happening in the news every day in the last several weeks. We're talking about changes to voting rights, changes uh, to uh, abortion. And, um, and, and it's possible that, um, that when we see what state legislatures are doing with wolves, that it's part of what is basically kind of the same kind of cultural tide. And, and if that's the case, you know, I think that, I mean, there's like a, a hardcore political answer, which speaks to who are in our state legislatures. And then it gets to, um, uh, a, I'll say a, a softer question, but it's, it's probably the more important question, which is, um, you know, we have a lot of, people in our country who have differing views on a lot of issues and we're not real good at talking to each other about <laughs> that. And, and one does wonder if, if what's needed are, um, are, are these kind of bigger changes. If that's true, um, and, and this is the part that, that might be tough to take, if that's true, doing better by wolves, that ain't going to happen this year or next year or the year after that. It's, it's, it's a slow process. And, and it means that people who love wolves um, would probably benefit from better understanding people who don't like them. Uh, you don't have to agree with them, but it would certainly benefit to, to hear them and listen to them. And how much should you listen to them? You should listen to them until you understand them. And, uh, and, and then, of course, to be able to better explain ourselves to people who disagree why it is that we feel the way that we do. Um, that's hard stuff. It's not very fun to hang out with people that you disagree with, uh, but we gotta we gotta make it so that we can be friends with such people, uh, and then it won't be so unpleasant. And then we can probably work through some of these things. But man, that's hard. That's a very tough road to hoe and slow in, in making. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I feedback feedback loops and uh, echo chambers have been kind of a defining cultural uh, identification, really, for for quite some time now, and. Um, I think you're right. I think a lot of change really happens um, with with conversations and actual understanding at uh, 
honestly, starting at starting at local levels, I feel like people have more more um, power and agency than they think that they do. Um, which which kind oh, yeah. of makes me wonder. So you know, the most popular uh, form of fighting any kind of endangered species, anything really, anything political, is I'm going to sign a petition. Um, and there's there's I have some thoughts about it in particular. One of which I feel like it. I feel like it then uh, 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 removes responsibility or maybe, maybe not removes responsibility. I feel like it, um, it lets you say, well, I did it. Um, I've done the work. I did my good person thing for today. And, (laughs) and, and now I can, now I can be done, but how, you know, how, how effective is, is, um, you know, petitioning or or anything like that as a tool um, for, for making these sorts of changes? You know, I, I agree with everything you're saying. Uh, it, it's the low bar level of participation in, in, in civics. And of course, there's so many issues for which so many people care about passionately. Not every person can get deeply involved. Yes. And so petitions still can be a valuable way for a person to get engaged, especially if they believe in a cause, but also have the kind of limited time and ability. The other thing that I would say is that... Um, what does a petition do? I don't know that petitions change minds very often, but they, what they do is they let elected leaders and uh, government officials know what people are thinking. And even think of something really pragmatic like this. Uh, Cory Booker, a senator in the United States Senate, he's been, a, he and a number of others have been um, really strongly supportive of environmental issues and wolves in particular. Um, Senator Booker's a very busy person. He's only got so much bandwidth and he's got to figure out what's the most important thing. And when he sees people signing petitions for this thing, that, or the other thing, that's an indication Mm. to him of what his constituents thinks are important. So there is a way. And again, I think other politically savvy colleagues can, uh, offer maybe different views, um, and additional views. But, but I, I do think that's one of them is to, is to let even, um, uh, politicians who are warm to certain ideas know just how important ideas are amongst the amongst the general public. Sure, sure. So it's it's almost like uh, uh, in a non-election year, it's an issue vote. It's a way of voting on what are the what are the issues that we want you to prioritize uh, undertaking solutions for. Um, yeah, nicely said, for sure, absolutely. Sure. Um, so let's see. Uh, you have. Of course, the the book, um, Restoring the Balance, What Wolves Tell Us About Our Relationship with Nature. Uh, when is that due to come out? It's due to come out October 12th. October 12th. October 12th. So uh, by the time that this hits people's ears, it'll be a little bit less than a month. So that's good news for for the people who, who will be listening. Um, could you just tell me a little bit a, a, about this book? What was the uh, the motivation behind it? What, what do you cover? Sure. You know, I've been... Um... I've been studying wolves uh, mostly on Isle Royal National Park. It's located in Lake Superior, just north of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And I've been there for more than three decades. And, um, you know, over the years, uh, the reflections just kind of kept building up and building up. And they started banging against the walls of my mind and they needed to escape. And so I let them escape out into this book. And uh, so the book is uh, important parts of it are, are memoir, notes from, from, from the field. Um, but 
but really, uh, the book is, um, it's a story of a population of wolves that lives on an island. And so I've been fortunate enough to, in collaboration with my colleagues, to be able to follow the lives of these wolves, um, you know, follow them from day to day and week to week and from year to year and generation to generation. And so, I mean, I study wolves for whom I knew their grandparents. And, um, and, and so, you know, one of the, the great lessons that comes from it, it's been the most important lesson for me. I've noted for some time now. But it's one that's very difficult to write about in the scientific literature, which is where I professionally uh, spend a great deal of my time uh, working. Um, and it's it's the simplest of observations. It's that wolves have lives. I mean, they, they have a yesterday that they remember. They have plans for what they would like to do next. Uh, they have relationships with other wolves that are, uh, you know, as rich as ours. And... Uh, and it's just that they have lives, and, and so I'm able to kind of show that uh, throughout the throughout the book. Um, the book also um, covers uh, particular events that took place on Isle Royale National Park. Um, in in recent years, the population had not been doing well. It was a unexpected uh, side effect of climate warming that they were not doing well. And the park service, the National Park Service, who manages this population. Um, decided uh, to restore wolf predation on the island because it was um, wolf predation that essentially failed. And um, and the process of making that decision was difficult for the Park Service. And so I, and I and I'd also have to say that they, well, they, they made the right decision to bring wolves back, but I'm not sure that all the reasons that have been offered for why, including some reasons that I uh, have been proffering, um, that, that they're completely resolved. And so the book explores some of those uh, ideas. And again, the, the the situation is that if if all that was at stake is what happened on Isle Royal, it would be awfully parochial and maybe not anyone needs to know about it. But but really what happens on Isle Royal is very much emblematic of so many other places, emblematic at two levels. One is that um, you know climate change is taking things away from many national parks, and we have to make this choice. When that happens, do we fight to save it when we can, or do we just say that's a new world that we live in and it's, it's tragic, but that's just the way that it is? And, and, the, and st- taking one slightly smaller step backwards, yet again, is um, you know we, we live on a very crowded planet. It's crowded with humans. And, uh, and, and how it is that we relate to nature is uh, the rules are different from now uh, going forward than they were in the past. And we're going to have to figure that out. So the book is an exploration of, of all those ideas as well. Yes, it, it reads, and I, and I say this, um, it, it reads like the mind of a biologist. And when I say that, what I mean is it's got such an honor of, of scale and deeper connections, you know, of exploring, like, what are those connections that we can observe, but what are also those connections that we might not be able to see at face value? What are some of those deeper connections, those, those things that are like uniting factors, you know, the, the roots beneath the soil, so to speak. Um, so I, I very much appreciated it. Uh, very thought provoking. Um, and just, it, it makes you, it makes you wonder, um, and I think that's I think that's the best thing. I think that's one of the best feelings that you can be left with in in any case is is wonder. Um, and so in this context, uh, I, beautifully done. So, um, yeah, 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 great, great, uh, great read.
I know it's been quite a while since we had a last uh, episode out, so thank you. Um, any of you who are out there who have tuned in to listen to this one, this is one that um, I've been really eager about, um, a little anxious about, uh, but definitely looking forward to. Um, it's, it's a topic that is very much close to my heart. So uh, thank you for listening. Um, check out our episode notes if you want to uh, see some more information, including a link to uh, the book that we mentioned at the top and in our conversation with Dr. John Vucetich uh, called Restoring the Balance, What Wolves Tell Us About Our Relationship with Nature. There is a link there, and we are also going to be posting it on our social media, so keep a lookout. Okay. Well, I guess that's it for now. Peace out, Rainbow Trout. And... uh Stay tuned. Also, I just want to say really quick before I go, do something today that uh, that would make nine-year-old you happy. Okay, that's it.